Welcome to A Reason for Hope, where we take your Bible questions and uh, questions about the Christian faith and worldview. This is a daily uh, broadcast uh, live, so you can catch us on Facebook if you look for Calvary Christian Fellowship Tucson on Facebook. We also live stream this to YouTube, so we really appreciate your questions as long as they're sincere and honest questions about the Bible or how we can apply the Bible to our everyday life as believers, or even if you're a skeptic and you're curious, how, how do I know God exists, or how do I know the Bible can be trustworthy? Aren't there contradictions in the Bible? Aren't there co- contradictions in the Christian worldview? And what about all the other religions? There's all kinds of questions that we would love to take for you, uh, from you. You can also uh, monitor us, <clears throat> uh, see it live on our website if you go to Calvary Christian Fellowship. Dot com. You can watch the live stream there as well. And studio with me, of course, is uh, our Bible Answer guys, uh, Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Scott Richards. Thanks so much for doing this every day. It's really a, quite a privilege to be here. I'm filling in for Dave Robson. I'll probably be doing this on a kind of more regular basis on Monday evenings, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. Yeah, yeah. the Monday evening crew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with that... Um, Let's see, is there any other ways to connect? Oh, uh, don't forget to um, uh, track us on Twitter. You can uh, follow Scott's uh, Twitter feed. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? It's ScottR4H at Twitter.com. That's Scott, the letter R, the number four, and the letter H. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we'll see what happens, but Twitter might still be a place where we will go to for information and connecting with people. We'll see, I guess, how that develops after... Uh, the recent changes there, but um, with that... Well, it uh, looks like it's uh, kind of going wide open now. I mean, among other things today, uh, uh, Juanita Broderick, of all people, got her Twitter account uh, account restored. Uh, So uh, it's definitely a different ball game over there. Uh, Free speech seems to be making a comeback. But Uh, not everyone are happy, as reported by the Babylon Bee. The Taliban have decided to go on a strike against Twitter because they don't feel the platform's safe anymore. uh, Okay. Okay. Not safe anymore. Not safe for Talibanic audiences. So (laughs) That's too bad. That's too bad. Well, we're uh, checking your questions on our live stream on Facebook, as well as YouTube, as well as our live stream from our website. So please chime in with your Bible questions, and we'll get to as many as we can today. Before we begin, though, we always want to take this time and devote it to God. So, uh, Sean, would you do us the privilege of uh, praying for our time together? Privilege it is. I'd be happy to. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to ask that you would be as well. Speak to your people and allow us to have ears that are ready to receive your voice and relate it to those who love you and want to know more about you. Thank you that we can be the first in line for that process. We ask that you would use this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 It's true. All right, so starting us off. Yeah, we had a question about, uh, and we dealt with this a little bit last week, about the rapture, uh, about what happens in heaven, especially a lot of questions about heaven. Uh, But we got a question from a listener who was concerned about, should I worry about my pets if the rapture were to occur in my lifetime, what about my pets? Is that something I should be concerned about? Uh, how how do you wrestle with something like that? I mean, something that, you know, you usually think about your children who may not be believers, your family members, but I never even thought, what if you have pets that you, you know, care about and love and are required to take care of? Yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you kind of think through that? 
Well, first, and the question came from Maggie, the key in this issue is to first understand that mindset isn't a wrong one. When it comes to our desire to take care of animals or to value and respect God's creation, this is something that's intrinsic as a part of the image of God. And in the book of Proverbs chapter 12, it notes that one of the characteristics of a righteous man is having regard for animals. Those who are at a lower level of life and value than humans. So if we want to model the heart of God and it doesn't extend to just the everyday animals, let alone the ones we've formed long-term relationships with, even if it's a goldfish, you know, a week or so, that you invest the time and uh, energy in giving them a comfortable shelter. Bubbles. Bubbles the goldfish. Yeah, Yeah. you you get sad when it's time for them to go. So people wonder, and this is the same mindset as well, should I have a certain perspective about when animals die as opposed to people. So when it comes to the idea of the rapture and having that concern, first of all, don't think that this is idolatrous. It's a characteristic of God to value life in general, but also the lives of his creation. The second thing to note isn't necessarily in priorities, but in perspective. We don't, and this was the question we dealt with last week about, will my uh, pets be in heaven? But putting into perspective what we know about God puts all of this into the proper hands because we don't know. We're not told what happens to our pets if they're like teleported sideways into some enclosure that will be free from tribulation plagues and so forth. I guess if you have a sea creatures, they're going to be having a bad time by the end of the tribulation because it says verbatim all sea creatures will die when the world's waters are turned to blood. But the point being made is this, when it comes to God's nature, when it comes to the consequences and horrors of sin, we need to make sure those are in two separate categories and never the twain shall meet, by definition, God's nature and sin being not God's nature. So would it be in God's nature to subject this creation, and this is key as well, all of creation, to a state of futility. Well, the book of Romans comes to mind, doesn't it? But with the intent of redeeming it. That's the first and most important key. Second, when it comes to God's provision of us being taken out of the way for God's wrath, the fact that this creation's being subject to it also needs to be taken into perspective, not just in grief for the lives that have been affected by this, human or otherwise, but also the fact that this is such a serious situation The collateral damage only makes it all the more heartbreaking that something like this had to happen to begin with and that it affects creation, especially the parts that we've grown attached to, that we love, that we can express and reflect the character of God in some ways. So that's something to take into consideration as well. But when we note that in all of creation, God has subjected us to a state of temporary suffering, that there is, in fact, a long-term restoration coming. And this is the comfort that we have in any perspective about God, even if it's not involving the rapture, even if it's just involving physical death. Will God take care of my animals? You know, I'm living alone. I'm not really tied in with my family. I don't know how this will be divvied up among the lawyers or the state if I'm truly isolated and so forth. These are the sort of things you can leave in the hands of God because A, he created these things. B, the fact that things like this, things that are going wrong, like the tribulation, like the fact that we will be departing from this world instead of stewarding it forever like we were intended to, 
are all upsets in what would be a perfect life. The fact that there are imperfect aspects don't necessarily mean that we're in a, uh, I guess, no-win situation. We're given the opportunity to reflect and express the heart of God with these animals, and we can be thankful for that time. We can also put into his hands the time that they will be spending beyond us if they don't go before us. Yeah, uh, you know, I think uh, there's a really important principle that comes out of questions like this, and I, I really appreciate it. Now, who was the one who asked the question? Maggie. Maggie, uh, great question, and there's a lot of questions like this. There's a lot of uh, things that we are obviously told uh, about the future and God's plans, but there's a lot of things that, quite frankly, we're not told, and uh, real legitimate questions come up. You know, whenever uh, that sort of thing presents itself to us, I think there's a really great scripture that can give us uh, perspective on this particular issue. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, I love that because it tells me something. There are some things this side of heaven I'm just not going to know. And if God needed me to know them, then I would know them. Among them would be the answer to the question, will pets go in the rapture? There's no biblical data that we've got uh, that can, we can say uh, yay or nay on all of that. Everything that we would put together on either side of that issue is an inference. Uh, and, and so it is one of those secret things. And, and here's the nice thing about secret things. They belong to the Lord our God. He's got them well in hand. Uh, you know, there's uh, an interesting insight for us in 1 Corinthians 13 that tells us that uh, now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I'm fully known. You know, the thing I love so much about that passage is this. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what, what's going to be the first thing you say when you hit heaven? Yeah, ever thought about that? I mean, some of the more expressive among us would probably say, hallelujah. Uh, some of the more cynical among us might say, gee, I, I hope there's no mistake here. And an <laughs> angel comes up and says, I'm sorry, sir, you're not on the list. Uh, it might take a little while to really realize that we're there. Uh, but, you know, the more I go on uh, and the more my funky brain works, the more I believe that when I get to heaven, the first time I'm going to go is, oh, I get it now. Hmm. I mean, all the things that I didn't know I'm going to know, and uh, all of the things I've always wondered about, uh, I'm going to be able to see with complete clarity because uh, I'm going to see Jesus as he is. Now, we don't see that kind of clarity right now on a number of issues that are probably near and dear to us. great example of this would be, uh, say, an individual that uh, passes away, and you really don't know where they stood with God, yay or nay. Um, you know, Are they going to be in heaven? Uh, you know, I've had to work through this uh, when some of my own relatives hmm. have passed away. But the thing that has given me peace in all of this is deferring back to the secret things belonging to the Lord our God. He knows. He knows exactly where that person is. And uh, again, Genesis 18.25 tells us, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Hmm. Now, if I just take those two principles, first of all, there's going to be some things where God is just going to say, I know what's going on here. Just trust me. If you needed to know, I would tell you, you don't know, so you don't need to know. But why can we trust God? Because he always gets it right. And, uh, you know, what I've been asked, say, at some of those memorials by some of my other relatives, well, where do you think this person is? 
you know, uh, I just defer back to that. I just say, mm-hmm. you know, they're in the hands of a just and loving God who will always do the right thing. Because saying one thing or the other is presumptuous. I don't know. I'm not the judge of all the earth. So when a question comes up like that, I, and, and Maggie, thank you so much for bringing it up. I think it's an excellent question because it helps us work through a whole lot of other questions mm-hmm. that we might not be able to get a definitive answer on in the scripture. The other part of Deuteronomy 29, uh, 29 is this, the things which are revealed belong to us. That's why we should be Bible junkies. That's why we should run, not walk, to our nearest Bible. That's why you should read the Word each and every day and become familiar with it. Because the more you become familiar with it, the more you understand the principles of God's Word, the more you're going to understand those things revealed. And those things are priceless. Those things are are lifesavers, especially in this world that is becoming more and more confusing and confounding and even distressing and depressing as time goes on. We've got the inside scoop. God has given us uh, insider info, if you will, about what his plans are and how it's all going to work out. And boy, the more we study these things, the more we become familiar with the character of Jesus by reading the Gospels, the more we see how the Lord modeled outreach and what a healthy church is all about in the book of Acts, the more we read the epistles and realize the same issues we struggle with in our walk with God have been struggled with for a long, long time, the more we read the book of Revelation and see how all this is going to turn out, uh, the better off we're going to be. So uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, I think, and uh, Genesis 18, 25, uh, those questions like, will my pets be raptured or what's going to happen to them then? Uh, we can give that into the hands of God and we can know that when we get to heaven. We're going to not say, well, you know, this is all great being in heaven and all, but God, I think you really dropped the ball on uh, Bubbles, the uh, the goldfish down there. No, God's, God's got Bubbles hmm. well taken care of. <laughs> Doesn't Paul sort of address this in Romans 3 where he's asking, you know, if some of the Israelites rejected God's plan of salvation, he goes on to say in verse <clears throat> 3, if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? He says, absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone else is a liar, as is written, yeah. that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Is that kind of the similar, is he kind of addressing a similar issues that God's judgments are always good and he, he's always right? Yeah. yeah and, all back on God's character. And, and you know, what he's talking about is everybody's got an opinion, right? Um you know, and it's funny. Uh, the one thing I've discovered in ministry is this. Uh, when uh, you, in California, the joke was when you got your driver's license, you also got to check off a box saying, I'm now a realtor because everybody in California was into real estate. But uh, I always added one to that. Uh, you also got to check off the box saying, I'm an expert on spiritual things. <laughs> I'm an expert theologian. I've got my little mm. check on my driver's license that endorses me as an expert uh, in uh, biblical matters. Mm. And, uh, and, and, you know, all these different uh, opinions and things like that. Well, okay, let every man be a liar. You know, some principles we get right from God's word, mm. some we don't. Uh, we've all, you got blind spots, I got blind spots, all God's children got blind spots. <clears throat> uh, none of us uh, see everything clearly. We see it through a mirror darkly mm. right now. But that doesn't mean that the, the huge overriding principles of God's word aren't very, very clear. And even just because there's debates and squabbles, and I guess uh, your uh, buddy Sam Harris has uh, 
uh, stirred up another hornet's nest of controversy before airtime, uh, talking about how uh, he and people like him should be the authoritarians who decide what should go on Twitter and what should not. Um, okay. Uh, you know, everybody's got an opinion. Uh, some of them are valid. Some of them are not. But uh, God's got the truth. And if God's got the truth, and Jesus is the embodiment of that truth, mm. and I can not only hear him teach that truth by reading his word, I can see him modeling that truth by looking at his life. Well, that's where my focus needs to be, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Well said. I couldn't have said it not only better, but at all myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, great question. Well, uh, Nina wants to know <clears throat> if God has a hierarchy of sins and good deeds. She asks, does God see some sins and uh, my Righteous screens, deeds. Yeah. Worse or better than others. Uh, she gives an example of assault versus murder or giving money versus a homeless person. It's a fair question, Nina, and we get this a lot, believe it or not, with our student ministry as well. And what I have to clarify is the hierarchy isn't in significance, it's in consequence. For example, if I hit someone, then I'm liable to the law for the penalties deemed for assault. If I murder someone, I'm liable to the law for the penalties due to murder, depending on what degree. But if, on the other hand, I'm guilty before God of murder in my heart, like Jesus said in Matthew 5, calling them raka, which literally is translated mm. vain fellow. It's like the nicest insult you could ever give somebody. He says that you're worthy of the judgment, literally the capital offense before the court. So we ask the question, is all sin the same in God's eyes? In a temporal, in a horizontal sense, given the consequences they cause to others, some sins are more cautioned against than others. More but, consequential, yeah. And, but all sin is a deviation between us and God's nature. So if I ask the question, is this a sin I want to commit? What we have to train ourselves into thinking is saying, if I weren't to act like Jesus in this way, how much would it ruin my life? And that's essentially the horizontal consequence we act on. If we get into a bit of a squabble, obviously there's going to be different environments or circumstances that will produce different consequences. If I take someone's life and I'm not under very specific authority, the military or in a judge, then I'm in trouble always and in very serious trouble at that. So we do acknowledge as Christians there is a hierarchy to consequences, but as far as sin, it is literally to miss God's nature. That's what means in the vertical sense. Our relationship with God is severed by any and all sin, which is why it notes the wages of sin is death, but then by contrast, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where the system kind of flips on its head, Nina, because think about the most inconsequential acts you could do on this earth. I trust the promises of God. In a horizontal sense, doesn't really affect all that much. But in a vertical sense, Huge. a willingness to trust Jesus' promises and who he mm. is and what he's done, that literally changes all of eternity. So we note the inverse as well. What are the consequences, spiritually and vertically, uh, or spiritually and, and physically, horizontally and vertically. Between me and God, it's separation between me and him. Mm. Between me and man, that's different. That's where the hierarchy exists. That's why other laws had different penalties, but before God it was, you need to bring a sacrifice because something's got to die. 
Yeah, and and I think here is one of those things where we see how differently we tend to look in a subject like sin than God does. Uh, we tend to see it strictly on the basis of the horizontal. And, and here's an example of it: uh, when when someone says, "Will uh, God keep some people out of heaven for committing just even a little sin?" Um, or will a little prayer save someone who's committed uh, horrible sins? Mm. They're looking at sin on the horizontal, you know, and, you know, let's face it, you could understand that. We live on the horizontal. We tend to process things that way. And so when we say, will even a little sin keep someone out of heaven, what we've kind of done is we've reduced the idea of our relationship with a holy God to uh, a comparison and contrast sort of thing. Uh, we, we think that somehow God's going to grade on the curve, hmm. you know, and, and we don't want anybody like when you're in a class and there's someone who's really smart who bumps up the curve, everybody gets mad at them because we kind of like things down here in the manageable, you know, and you can still get an A on an exam even though you only got 70% of the questions right. Uh, but if that smart person's in the class and they, they ace it, then you're all in trouble, you know, and so we don't like that. Uh, and, and so when we talk about, you know, gradations of sin, like some are worse than others. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the horizontal, um, me having an impure thought is going to have less consequence immediately than say me acting on that impure thought and say sexually assaulting somebody. Obviously there's going to be a difference in the impact of those sins on the horizontal. But all of those sins have one thing in mind. All have sinned and fall short of what? The curve? Oh, yeah. Be nice people? Mm. No, the glory of God. Mm. Um, the entrance into heaven, according to the Bible, requires a perfect life. Uh, you can either try to live that perfect life, or you can put your trust in the only one who ever lived a perfect life, and that's Jesus. And some people say, well, well why, why is that? Well, because God is love. There's no doubt about it. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. But God is also just, and God cannot compromise either of these attributes and continue to be God, continue to be holy. You know, I think it's, it's really interesting. We saw this uh, yesterday at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We were going through uh, Acts chapter 3, how Peter referred to Jesus as the holy one and the just. That's, that's how he described Jesus, and he is. And for Jesus to look at uh, my sin, no matter how insignificant it might be based on grading on the curve, and look the other way or say, well, you tried uh, you still rejected my standards. You still were in rebellion against me in just this little teeny tiny way. Okay, you kept my law 99% of the time. Okay, you're in. Well, A, what does that tell us about the character of God in that situation? He's not just any longer, right? Because he's overlooking a sin. If we went to court and we found that a judge was regularly overlooking violations of criminal law because you didn't want to ruin somebody's day or you know they tried so hard or this is their they're they voted for the right they're they're their first time in court or you know we would say well i get that but that's not justice you know this is the first time they ever burglarized anybody 
You know, I think that person should quit being such a sorehead about having all their their goods that they worked so hard for uh, carted away and sold on eBay. You know, we'd go, oh, you know, I I just think it's wonderful that. But the person on the other side is going, I got ripped off. He's going to say that judge is unjust. Hmm. He is not upholding the law. Well, God can't do that. God cannot be untrue to himself. His attribute of love and justice must always be upheld. And so when we get into the, you know, well, won't God let the 99 percenters, you know, the really uh, amazing people in this world that we all admire and look up to or spiritual leaders or things like this, won't he let them into heaven? Well, okay, if he lets the 99 percenter in, just for sake of argument, won't we have to turn around and say, yeah, but what about the 98 percenter? They're only 1% lower than the 99%. Surely God's compassion and mercy will extend to them as well. Well, great. Then the 97%ers are going to be going. And if you keep following that progression, soon you've got Hitler in heaven because he was nice to small animals and children. Can you imagine Adolf Hitler in heaven and God countenancing something like that? Yeah, we just got this Holocaust thing over here, but I'm all loving. Come on in. Well, that's not being all loving. That's being amoral. That's that's being completely unjust. God will not do that. And, you know, and so when we get into these these questions about, you know, do all sins have the same consequence? Horizontally, sure, different sins have different consequences. Doesn't take a, a deep theologian uh, to figure that out. But as far as the ultimate consequence. You know, if you miss heaven by six inches or 6,000 miles, you still missed heaven. Mm. And because God is love and because God is just and because he created these crazy human beings with the capacity to receive or reject a relationship with him, uh, he had to make a provision for that to satisfy his attribute of love, which wants to reach out and reconcile his fallen creatures and his justice without compromising either. And that's where the brilliance of the message of salvation comes in. God, mm. before the foundation of the world, before he created anyone, already decided that he would become a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the virgin birth is all about, a birth unlike any other, an entrance into this world unlike any other. He would live a life unlike any other, completely sinless, in word, thought, deed, action, the whole nine yards. Not 99%, 100%, right? He would willingly take that life and lay it down on a cruel Roman cross, not for his own sin, but to pay the price for your sins and my sins. And because he was a perfect man, he could be our representative, but because he was also perfect God, those two natures fused in Jesus, but not confused in Jesus, when we see that, we discover that his sacrifice had eternal consequence. You see, in that one sacrifice, the love of God and the justice of God are completely satisfied. That's why Jesus said, and that's why the Bible is adamant about the fact that there is salvation in no other name. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved because no one else solved our problem in a perfect way, maintaining love and justice. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, well, that excludes 
those who say have followed the eightfold path or have attempted to live their life according to the, the, the Quran and the surahs and the hadiths and, and so on, the sunnahs and, and, and all. You know, you can do all of these things, right? Chuck Smith had a great illustration about this. Say I lived this perfect life. You know, I never blew it in my relationship with God. I always walked with him. And uh, here I was driving home uh, from, from the office, and someone runs a red light right in front of me, and the last thing I think in my mind is, you idiot! Well, you're out! Because Jesus said, if you think about your brother, you're, you idiot. You already murdered him in your heart. Mm. So here's the bottom line. We are always looking for ways to sort of uh, take sort of this, the, the, the sting, if you will, uh, out of our, our sense of conviction about our sins. Mm. We like to minimize them. We like to uh, you know, do comparative religiosity. Oh, well, I'm no great shakes, but... Boy, that guy next to me in the pew, that really, you know, if God grades on the curve, I'm okay. God doesn't grade on the curve. Mm. Can't, won't. Scripture absolutely excludes it. Mm. So we might as well face those facts instead of sitting around debating about these facts. Yeah, you know, certain sins certainly have greater horizontal consequences. But when it comes to heaven, a miss is as good as a mile. Mm. So when it comes to the great white throne judgment, it's very eternally binary. You're in or you're out. And all of us start off as out because, as you said, you know, there are none righteous, not even one. So we all are guilty and require God's grace. But what about the heavenly? Part of Nina's question also included righteous deeds. Is there a hierarchy of rewards for Christians who are more faithful than others with what God has given them? Or is it also an even, I mean, yes, we're in the kingdom as believers, but you know, someone who devoted their life to the ministry versus someone who, as Paul would say, by the skin of their teeth, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, that's what I was talking about when I said the inverse is also true. If we look at the most inconsequential things that we're doing, uh, the illustrations often made of the, uh, you know, clams and so forth that are washed up on the beach, they're uh, still living creatures, but obviously not very consequential. The kid's throwing them back into the uh, uh, ocean bed and the skeptic comes along and says, what difference do you think that makes? Look at this ocean, look at the beach, all these uh, clams that are washed up on the shore. What difference do you think you're going to make? And then the kid just looks and picks up another clam and says, makes a big difference to this one. Yeah. And throws it in. Yeah. That's the same principle. So when we're talking about the yeah. righteous things, the things that will have the most heavenly rewards, it's going to be the same in verse. The things that we seemingly had no impact on, but were able to faithfully reflect the character of God in, even in the smallest of ways, has incredible eternal significance. And that's what Second or Second Corinthians, First Corinthians 12 was talking about, the things that the Holy Spirit does in and through his people. Well, mm-hmm. You're asking the question, why am I being rewarded for that? That's the point. That's what's being instilled into mm-hmm. you, more and more of God's glory, more in a, a capacity to reflect him on an individual and on a seemingly superficial basis. If something as small and insignificant as trusting God's promises ultimately results in an eternally changed destiny, think about what kind of impact is made in eternity when you're just doing something as simple as, hey, can I pray for you today? Or, you know what, I had the opportunity to um, just encourage somebody uh, I was feeling a little caustic, but I decided to lay, lay myself aside for a moment and just not return when someone seemed to be a little bit bitter. I'm going to practice patience here when it wasn't deserved. I'm going to reflect yeah. some grace when it 
doesn't really ultimately make a difference because that person's still a sorehead and I'm still kind of salty about the encounter. But I took the opportunity to model the heart of God. Mm. Those are the things he's rewarding. Those are the things that he will say, good and faithful servant, well done. So you have to note in uh, evil terms, yes, the sins that we commit do have different consequences on the horizontal, but it's all the same vertically. Well, in the same way, modeling God's heart kind of always has the same outcome in the horizontal. You're either underappreciated, dismissed, or even hated for it. But in the eternal, it does a lot more than you realize. Yeah, and and there's a fascinating statement that Jesus made uh, about what really matters and what God is going to reward in this life. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40, he said, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Okay, so... There is a reward for someone who receives, say, one of the apostles or an individual that is sharing God's word. They're going to be rewarded for that. Why? Because they're not just receiving that messenger of Jesus. Jesus says, it's the same thing as if you'd received me. Mm. And if you receive me, it's just like receiving my father. That's pretty mind-blowing when you stop and think Mm. about it. But it gets deeper. He says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. You know, so here you have people that maybe don't have the huge religious resume under their belt, but they really recognize that God is using somebody and they want to do what they can to encourage them, pray for them, support them. Well, from God's economy, you're going to be rewarded along those lines. I mean, think about all of the prayer support that went into a Billy Graham crusade. Mm. You know, we, we, we tend to think, oh, well, Billy is going to be the one who gets the, you know, the mega crown and the front row seat, uh, you know, before. But everybody who prayed from, for this outreach and saw people come to know the Lord is going to be similarly rewarded. And, and that, that kind of blows our minds a little bit. But wait, there's more. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Hmm. You know, just because you belong to Jesus, you decide to be kind to somebody. Just because you belong to Jesus, you go out of your way, like you said, to pray for somebody. Uh, just because you belong to Jesus, instead of, you know, going home and taking a nap, you, you, you go by the hospital and visit somebody. Now, you know, Jesus is saying, look, you're not going to lose your reward. You're going to be richly rewarded for that in ways you can't even begin to comprehend and understand. And, and I think one of the real weak points uh, in evangelical Christianity today is a lack of understanding of these rewards mm-hmm. and how significant they really are. Well, heaven and going to heaven, that's its own reward. And gosh, mm-hmm. oh, I don't, I don't need anything any more than that. It's a good you know, goofy impersonation. You know, right and, and, and we tend to think that, like that, but it is goofy thinking. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's completely contrary to a very strong message of the Bible. Yes, there are rewards to be received. How? By walking in faith, hmm. by allowing the Lord to use us. Boy, I, I love what uh, Solomon observed in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 uh, and, uh, and verse 10. Uh, he, well, actually, it's uh, verse 14. It says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. 
God does it that men should fear before him. Mm. So what am I going to be rewarded for? Uh, what are we going to be rewarded for as believers? Those things that God did in and through our lives, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, and I'm sure when we get to heaven, we're going to see the Lord rewarding us. But from that point of view, we're going to say, well, well wait a minute, Lord, you did that anyway. And the Lord will say, yeah, but I used you to do it. And you're going to be rewarded for that. Now, you know, no wonder in <laughs> Revelation chapter 4, we see the 24 elders, a representative of the, the church down through time, and uh, even the, the people of Israel, depending on your take on all of that, when they, they worship the Lord, they take their crowns, which are the symbol of earthly rewards, and they cast them before the Lord and say, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and praise forever. Uh, we're going to realize something. You know, <laughs> God did it. Anything significant, God did. You know, there's that old uh, spiritual that Pastor Chuck Smith always liked to quote. There's only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done in Christ will last. And you know, if that's true, then we should really um, wake up in the morning and just say, well, you know what, Lord? I want you to bless people through me today. Uh, I want you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and reach out through my feeble little life and the contacts that I have. Uh, make my life count for something in your mm -hmm. eyes forever. Give me the power to do that. <clears throat> Not for you. That's where we get into trouble, right? We try to do things for God. That's the express way to burn out city because we end up doing things in the flesh, even if we're well-intentioned, we'll only do things until we run out of gas. You know, again, another Chuck Smithism, if you strive to gain, you're going to strive to maintain. You got to mm. keep it going if you're the one who built it. But if God does the building, if Jesus builds the church, for instance, if, if Jesus fills you with the spirit and gives you the wisdom and the word to be able to share, or even the love, like you said, to be able to deal with people that might be pushing your buttons at a particular moment. If God does that, then there is going to be significant eternal reward. Why? Because God, who is eternal, did it. <laughs> and that's what I want to get in on. Uh, boy, it was such a landmark moment in my life when I realized something. There is a huge difference between trying to do something for God and letting God do something through you. Mm. I mean, it sounds subtle, and uh, if you're having a hard time out there wrapping your mind around that, pray about it. But that's the difference between religion and relationship. Mm. It's the difference between grace and grinding legalism. And you wonder why so many Christians start out on a good note in their walk with God, and they just love Jesus, and and boy, you know, isn't it wonderful? I'm saved by grace, and I'm just rejoicing in that. But you check up on them another 10, 15 years later, and they're involved with all these theologies and all these debates and all these little snarling, snarky things and all this other stuff. And you go, man, where did where did where did all that go? Well, I'll tell you where it went. Somewhere along the line, they made that that subtle error, and and for me, very personal because you know I. Uh, was raised in an environment where, you know, my dad uh, grew up in a dirt poor town in Eastern Washington. And he was taught from knee high to a grasshopper. If you become a white collar guy, then you're going to be somebody. That's what you got to do. That's where you're going to find fulfillment in life. And he did, you know, he, he worked hard. He, he uh, got a scholarship to the University of Washington through the ROTC, 
uh, ended up being a bomber pilot, a uh, tactical bomber pilot, got out, became an attorney. And his uh, life lesson that he passed on to us as his kids was this, you know, if you're going to be somebody, you got to achieve. And, and so subtly or unsubtly, it was like if you wanted acceptance, if you wanted uh, an expression of love, it was always in response to achievement. Uh, it was always in response to getting good grades or some athletic accomplishment. Uh, you know, I'll never forget when I got my first book published nationally, the first thing words out of my dad's mouth was, well, when's your next one coming out? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, <clears throat> okay, back to the grindstone. And, and I understand why he did that because he didn't want us living in a dirt poor town mm -hmm. in Eastern Arizona or someplace like that. And I get that. But the funny thing was, I, I was drawn to a relationship with Jesus because of, uh, I finally understood that God loved me unconditionally, that that's when Jesus died for me. And that drew me just to the Lord like, like, uh, like nobody's business. And I was so at peace with all of that. But it was really interesting, all the baggage that I took with me, all my worldview from being raised in that kind of love is always given in response to achievement, hmm. I transferred that to God. Hmm. And uh, boy, you start... Uh, transferring that to God, uh, you know, there's no end to it. Mm. You know, he becomes the 700-foot-tall critical parent who you can't please. Mm. And uh, acceptance like, is always just right beyond your reach. And there's so many people live their Christian lives that way, and they just burn out. Mm. Don't burn out. Here's how you, and people say, well, it's better to burn out than to rust out. Well, <laughs> why out at all? is my question. And you don't mm. have to. Mm. If you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm not bringing anything to this party. I know I can't please you by my good works. Mm. Uh, all my good works are filthy rags, but I believe that you can live your life out through me, through Jesus, through the So Holy we're Spirit. stunting ourselves by even approaching the whole subject of looking at lesser degrees of sin and righteousness, and we're starting off with the wrong thinking in the first place. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, Craig has, relating to sin... <clears throat> You know, Craig uh, Hopkins asks, is, in heaven there will be no corruption. Satan is locked away and his influence has gone. Is that why sin won't exist anymore? I imagine without Satan, the Holy Spirit will have all authority in our lives, do the right thing. It's in not words, the absence of Satan, it's the presence of and the voluntary reception of the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 3, 1 through 3, noting that point, we don't know what we shall be, but we know that when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. And note that uh, Jesus is never going to sin, nor has he, nor will he. Yeah. And that's what we'll be reflecting first and foremost. So, Craig, just note, uh, it's not less Satan, it's more Jesus. That's the focus of the Christian life. Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a good, interesting question to wonder whether or not... Um, you know, he's holding the keys to our disobedience. And if he's gone, is that why we're... Yeah, the devil made me do it. No, we yeah. don't we don't espouse that theology. Well, the devil can do two things, at bottom line. Uh, he can invent false doctrine and make it appealing to people. Uh, that is what he trades in. And he can also organize rebellion against God. That's pretty much all he can do. You know, he can't force you to do something against your will. Uh, he can't, uh, you know, lightly possess you if you're a believer and give you some habitual sin. Uh, you know, one of the, the uh, I think C.S. Lewis talked about how uh, there's two equal and opposite errors that we make. Either we ignore Satan's reality completely or uh, we turn around and uh, obsess on him 
in an unhealthy way. Uh, I, we don't ignore Satan. We don't underestimate the fact that he's very clever mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, we, just like Eve, can easily be deceived. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't uh, live in reaction to him either. Mm-hmm. He's a fallen angel, but he's just an angel. He's not the equal and opposite of God, right? Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Uh, Jari passes on a question from a relative who is a Pentecostal. She says, isn't the Holy Spirit more powerful than Scripture? Uh, people who rely on Scripture alone lack faith. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, and there's a follow-up, too, that kind of makes our case for us. It says, Adam and Abraham, this is quoting his relative, di- and Eve didn't have the Bible, and we won't have the Bible in the new heaven and earth, so why do we need the Bible now? She seems to go by experience rather than Scripture and is hyper-charismatic. So the assumption there is that, first of all, you would know that about Adam, Eve, and Abraham, apart from the, and this is where the misunderstanding is, revelation of right. Scripture. Right. When we ask, what am I trusting in? That's what faith means, trust with reason. If I trust the Holy Spirit to do a work in my life, how do I know the difference between the Holy Spirit and my emotions? How do I know the difference between the Holy Spirit and my culture? How do I know the difference between the Holy Spirit and my fallen nature masquerading as my own idol? I can't know that apart from the revelation of God. So if I'm asking the question, oh, so I should focus more on the Holy Spirit. I don't need that scripture. You don't know the Holy Spirit apart from Scripture. And the point being made is this. When it comes to what Adam and Eve had, what Abraham had, it was the revelation of God that they had access to. For us to cast aside the revelation we have access to in favor of the Holy Spirit, where'd you find out about him in the first place? And that's the problem. So again, all due respect to your elder, but what, or to your relative rather, but what you're essentially putting yourself in as far as the double bind is concerned is you're trusting in a concept in order to dismiss him. Because in Second Peter chapter 1, we're told that it wasn't holy men of God that revealed these things to us. Men of God were moved as or by what? The Holy Spirit. Right. So if you love the Holy Spirit, you should love what he had to say. If you want the Holy Spirit, Here's how you access him and what he's revealed about the Son and the Father. Now, you continue on, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. What is the profit of Scripture? It's not, of course, to replace common sense thinking, but to inform what? Godly living. It's profitable for a proof when we get off track. Doctrine, what we believe about God, knowing the difference between the Holy Spirit and not. Right. On and on it goes. But the point being made is this. What... People need to avoid, and again, hyper-charismania, you say hyper-anything, it's generally bad, is when you neglect the greater, quote-unquote, for the lesser, you say, I want the Holy Spirit, not just the Scripture, this limited, fallible suggestion list. The Holy Spirit gave us Scripture, and if you genuinely love Him, you'll want His revelation. But if, on the other hand, you hate the Holy Spirit, and I'll say that without fear of contradiction, then you're going to seek every opportunity to excuse or replace his influence in your life. That doesn't sound to me like love. That sounds like idolatry. Yeah, or even uh, I kind of get a, and I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I've been in charismatic circles where the Holy Spirit, 
right, is not seen as the third person of the Trinity. I mean, they might give lip service to that, that doctrine. A person whom we have a relationship with, the Holy Spirit is an experience. Yep. It's a feeling. It, it's, it's a uh, sense of, of aura about a particular event going on. And if uh, people start carrying on and caterwauling and jumping over pews and, and so on and falling over backwards, people say, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. No, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's what they do. It's the aura. It's the experience. It's the feeling that they have confused with the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and the reason I say it's confused is, is confusing is because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul said, let all things be done decently and in order. Same uh, chapter, both you know, of those statements. First Corinthians 14. And, and in First Corinthians 14, if you don't get that correctly, if you don't do things according to the Holy Spirit-inspired word, we're told, you know, well, you know, you're all uh, speaking in tongues all at once together. Well, not uh, those who are untaught or untrained come in and say you're all mad. You know, they're going to just think you're nuts, which is not what I call a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So you got to be really careful, Yari, uh, and I would in encourage you to pass this on to your, your relative. Be very careful about confusing a feeling or an experience with the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it, the reason I say it's so important is this. I run into so many people who are ex-Christians who will say things like, well, you know, when I first became a Christian, I had this feeling, you know, and I just feeling this closeness, this feeling of peace, and I had this feeling of joy in my life, and I had this feeling, and now I don't have that anymore. You know, I, I had the stomach flu, and I didn't feel at peace at all. Or, you know, maybe they went through some horrendous, depressing series of events. They don't feel that peace anymore. They confuse the presence of God with an emotional reaction to the presence of God. And that sounds subtle, but it's really, really deadly. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot uh, wrote a song where he says, I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. Hmm. And the relationship was over. Well, that was Gordon Lightfoot talking about his girlfriend. That is not how we should look at a relationship with God. Like you said, Sean, what's faith? Is faith a feeling? No, it is a decision to trust based on the reason, the revelation that you've been given. Yeah, and, and so faith isn't against feelings. I love when I have the feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, I love Holy Ghost goosebumps and spirit shivers, and I love those times where I just have that, you know, the, the peaceful experience of the presence of God where I feel like I could reach out and, and tell. I love that. But the Lord showed me over the years that's a blessing, but that's not your relationship. Mm -hmm. That flows out of that relationship. It's not a substitute for it. The other thing I would add is, you know, the, the non-starter in all of this is that we won't have the Bible in heaven. Well, that's news uh, to Simon Peter because in 1 Peter chapter 1 and, uh, and verse uh, uh, 22, we read, so, so since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides, how long? Forever, okay? Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And what we're fond of saying, there's two things you can encounter here on this earth that'll last forever, the word of God and people. So there will be a Bible in heaven, trust me. Well, we got to 
<clears throat> interesting question from Reynold, 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 asking if there's any indication in scripture of what happened to Pontius Pilate. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. And, yeah. and did he become a Christian or anything? Is there any historical or biblical? In, yeah, in scripture, no. There are some traditions that note that after his failure to keep the peace in the province he was entrusted, the emperor exiled him to the Alps where he died washing his hands in the snow, a callback to him washing his hands of Jesus' blood, and, of course, saying, I can't get the stain out. Now, the problem is, like most... Uh, early church history and tradition, no evidence to support this, apart from the probability that Pilate wasn't on good terms with uh, the emperor, it would have been Tiberius at the time, uh, because of his inability to do the one thing he was paid to do. So uh, that's all we know. As far as from Scripture, no, we're not told anything. We're just told that when he had the opportunity to get the answer to his question, he dismissed it. He said, what is truth? And then didn't wait for an answer because he was talking to it. Yeah, um, yeah, a couple of things that we can say about this in uh, Matthew chapter 27. You know, what was Pilate's reaction to Jesus? Well, it was pretty complicated, actually. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He said to them, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate says, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Pilate was a very cagey politician. Uh, When he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Then they all said, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? They all cried out all the more, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult or a riot was rising, He took water and washed his hands before the multitude and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. So he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You read this, you read John chapter 18, you can read it on your own time. You get the idea that Pilate's really reluctant to crucify Jesus. In fact, he's a little scared of Jesus and his responses and his answers. You know, you're you're a king then? You're not a king of this world. And, you know, he even redoubled his efforts to try to release him. So it was very clear that Pilate was impressed with Jesus enough or maybe scared uh, about Jesus enough. Maybe it was the uh, message from his wife. Maybe he was scared of his wife, for all we know. Uh, but he definitely wanted to release Jesus. And so some people say, well, maybe Pilate uh, <coughs> repented. But we're also given another piece of the puzzle. In the book of Luke, chapter 23, we're told that after Herod and his buddies had his way, their way with Jesus, that, and he sent him back to Pilate to be judged. We were told a very interesting thing. It said, from that time onward, Herod and Pilate became close friends, for prior to that, they had been in enmity with each other. They, they had uh, had a feud with each other. The only thing they kind of agreed on was that this Jesus was a problem to be dealt with. Hmm. So you put all that together, you look at the fact that one of the reasons that Pilate got exiled 
was because of his brutality, was creating more and more riot situations in his governorship, and the Romans just wanted peace in the region. I don't think there was any conversion that went on there. I think mm. Pilate came up to the, the edge of it, but like a lot of people, they stare at Jesus, they see the edge of a relationship with him, and they harden their heart and turn away, and that was that. Wow. So... Well, we've got just uh, another minute to quickly— Get through four more questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, real quick, Talon wanted to know if you had any financial advice about going to Bible college, and then Jari followed up by asking, why would you even go to Bible college, or should I just study the Scriptures for myself? Because most Christian colleges and seminaries have a lot of confusion and false teachers. So it's kind of a two people asking a related question, but— Well, having been to seminary, a couple things— First of all, how did I get through seminary? Uh, where God guides, he provides. I don't think that it's unwise uh, you know, to save up some money or to look for grants and different things that are available to help you with the process. God can certainly guide through all of that. But if the Lord wants you to go through seminary, he's going to provide the wherewithal to do it. Uh, you know, I could just tell you story after story where I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills. Uh, I didn't know where, uh, you know, things were going to get. The Lord moved upon the heart a very generous man by the name of Jack Burns who, who stepped in and, and paid, uh, you know, uh, my tuition uh, when I couldn't afford it. And I really just see the hand of God in that. If God wants you to go through that, he's going to get you through it. Secondly, what's the value of it? For me, it was the first real systematic exposure to Scripture I had. And, and as that, it was valuable. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for questions. If we missed it, we'll try to get to it tomorrow. God bless you. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.